pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, limited use of copyrighted material is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news, reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. This podcast is otherwise copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. to episode 40 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. I don't know which is more shocking, to possibly be part of the final generation prior to the return of Jesus Christ, or to watch the world experience the kinds of delusions that will characterize the last generation. The great apostle Paul may have felt similarly in his era because he clearly did not want his flocks to be despairing and without hope. He spent a lot of time providing context to the problems of their age, which included some optimistic illustrations of what lay ahead. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he said, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The Thessalonians had been told by unidentified preachers that anyone who died before Jesus Christ returned died because of their sins and unbelief and were therefore doomed to hell. The Thessalonians fully expected Christ to return very soon as humans measure soon. They were despairing of their fellow believers who had died, so Paul had to address it in verse 14. He said, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Sleep being a metaphor for those who have died. They are not doomed to hell, but rather will be brought with Jesus when he returns. And in 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul further explained that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So Christians are not designated for imprisonment in Hades, the abode of the dead, which is a kind of spiritual jail prior to the judgment. Rather, Christians are to be with Jesus where they will prepare for his triumphant return to the earth. So those were some of the big issues in Paul's day, and they're still important issues for pastors to address today. But I'm not a pastor. That's not my job. Underground Christian is more like a forward observer for Jesus Christ's army. It may be a very tiny, insignificant, and rather pitiful forward observer, but we all have our place. This is a kind of watchtower for Christians, put here by God to warn of approaching dangers and, hopefully, suggest some solutions to those approaching dangers. Or, if no solutions are at hand, at least provide some camaraderie when the danger arrives. The old problems that Paul was dealing with in the first century are still with us today, certainly for those without Christ and those who are new to Christ, but there are many other problems that contemporary Christians will have to deal with. Many of these modern problems were described in the Bible for a future day, a dreadful day that would confuse, confound, and entrap many people, including many people who claim the name of Christ. When I say the word day, I don't mean a literal, single, 24-hour day for those who like to take things literally. The day I speak of is a time when God will send a great delusion onto the inhabitants of the earth, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.11. But what does the Bible mean by a great delusion? 
Let's inquire of the great tome of all linguistic knowledge, dictionary.com. According to the language oracle, a delusion is a false belief or opinion that is resistant to reason or confrontation with actual fact. Finally, I found a definition I like. The great delusion, then, will be a widely held, incredibly false belief or opinion that does not yield to reason or confrontation with actual fact and is specific to the coming Antichrist and his governmental system. People are going to really love the delusion and love him, even as he leads them toward the most complete destruction the world has ever known. But that day has not arrived yet, so what we are witnessing today are merely some birth pangs of the great delusion, which would make them a series of little delusions. These little delusions are viewpoints that are popularly held to be true and virtuous, whereas they are actually false and evil. It's a kind of warm-up for the main event. Today, people don't believe that the Antichrist could be God, but in the future, people will be convinced of it. And that is a big delusion. Today's people just think that men can be women and women can be men. They think if they are born enough times, they will finally graduate to being little gods. They believe that the earth is in danger from carbon and nitrogen poisoning, carbon being the building block of life and nitrogen making up most of the atmosphere, and that we can somehow save the earth by eliminating both. They believe it is right and just and virtuous to discriminate based on race, skin color, gender, sexual orientation, specific historical ancestries, and dozens of other superficial characteristics, just as long as the discrimination goes in the right direction. Yet somehow, it's unjust and evil to promote a society that treats all people as equal under the law. People believe that grandiose expressions of satanic devil-worshipping in public venues and events is good, especially if it's entertaining, but anyone who quotes a verse of scripture in public is an evil, psychotic cultist who must be controlled. They believe that killing babies in the name of personal convenience is good, but holding a sign expressing the opinion that killing babies is wrong is evil. I could go on, but why? If you don't think these things are expressions of little delusions, well, there you go. There isn't much more I can say about it. When delusion takes over, violence and chaos soon follow. Those who suffer from delusion are often hostile and violent toward those who are opposed to their delusion, and the more delusional they are, the more willing they seem to enforce their delusions through violence. The most delusional of all people are those who contend with both God and man in an effort to elevate themselves above both. These special people occupy every conceivable social and economic niche, but the most deluded and most dangerous of all are the politicians. They are not dangerous in the sense of being a personal threat to others like a mobster, gang leader, or serial killer. They don't get their hands dirty like that. But they are dangerous in the sense that they induce or direct others to do harm through laws, statutes, regulations, and incentives. They are dangerous because they can wage war with impunity, whether overt declared wars of destruction or covert undeclared wars of chaos that lead to destruction. With the casualness of a psychopath wielding a knife at a victim, they often wield armies bent on destruction, and lots of people even volunteer to join their armies. It's amazing what kinds of actions a dollar's worth of metal and five cents worth of cloth will get a politician when they pin it on someone's chest. At one time, Americans had a healthy fear of politicians who sought absolute power because they knew that tyranny was just around the corner and they had experienced tyranny firsthand. These founders of early America structured the government in such a way that politicians would be forced to fear the electorate rather than the other way around, thereby ensuring that politicians would not reach for too much power. 
but it's the nature of politicians to reach for power, consolidate whatever power they can grab, and then wield it to seize yet more power. Power, in this context, is the system by which people and resources are controlled. Absolute power in the hands of anyone produces tyranny, which, according to Dictionary.com, is the arbitrary or unrestrained exercise of power and the abuse of authority. I think the word arbitrary is wrong, though. It should be unlimited. Tyranny is the unlimited and unrestrained exercise of power. It might be arbitrary and it might not be arbitrary, but it's always abusive in the practical sense. Unrestrained power is an aphrodisiac for elitists. Once a person has bought and experienced everything that can be bought and experienced, the lust of more experiences diminishes while the lust to control what other people experience expands exponentially. Tyrants are attracted to power, so anywhere power is concentrated, the wannabe tyrants will congregate. Centralizing, concentrating, and increasing power brings out increasingly evil actions in the people who seek that power. It is inevitable that it will bring out evil actions in people, and this is why. Unrestrained power always favors those who are least restrained in their behavior. If there is no consequence to a ruler's behavior, then the quest for power becomes a test of how much cleverness, force, or brutality one person is willing to use to control all the other contenders to the power. It is the law of the jungle applied to human governance. Saddam Hussein, prior to becoming the tyrant of Iraq, famously entered into the legislature and demanded that the legislators swear allegiance to him. A leading Iraqi legislator condemned his grotesque effrontery and demanded that he leave. Saddam motioned quietly to one of his lieutenants, who went down to the Diaz and shot the legislator in the head in front of all the others. Saddam then called for a vote, and not surprisingly, he won unanimously. Saddam Hussein was willing to use more power than any of the other legislators. He was willing to use more power than the military generals, the local leaders, the courts, and the police. Before anyone could order a falafel, he had the whole country working for him and doing whatever he told them to do. Of course, if one man can use force to depose an existing ruler and elevate himself to the status of tyrant, another man can do that too. So tyrants quickly become distrustful of their fellow man to the point of paranoia, usually violent paranoia. They deploy hordes of secret police to monitor everything that their captive citizenry does, and they do everything they can possibly do to control the actions of that citizenry. The slightest deviation from complete submission usually elicits an extreme response from the tyrants. Richard Wormbrand was a Romanian pastor in the mid-1940s who refused to stop preaching the gospel and praise the godless communist rulers of Romania. Because of that, he was arrested in 1947 and imprisoned for eight years in a gulag, three of which were served in solitary confinement without lights, windows, or contact with the outside world. When the rulers believed that he had learned his lesson, they let him out of prison, whereupon he immediately began preaching the gospel again. He was promptly re-imprisoned for a 24-year term, subjected to daily beatings and torture sessions, and was so abused and frequently and severely beaten that he was never able to walk normally again. But he never stopped preaching. A British woman has taken a page from Mr. Wormbrand's playbook, sort of, in that she made it her daily duty to protest outside a British abortion clinic. In response, the British Parliament passed legislation making it illegal to protest outside of an abortion clinic, so instead she started praying. 
In response, the British Parliament passed legislation making it illegal to pray in the hearing of anyone who wanted to access an abortion clinic. Finally, in obedience to British law, she simply stood outside the clinic praying silently. Just last week, she was arrested for praying silently outside an abortion clinic in defiance of the new British law. Let's hear the brave enforcer of tyranny talk to her. Can I please ask you to step away from here and step outside the exclusion zone? But you've said you're engaging in prayer, which is the offence. It's silent prayer. No, but you are still engaging in prayer. It is an offence. I disagree. Okay then. So, you would rather that uh, you be arrested and taken away than stand outside the exclusion zone, is that what you're saying? So yes, it's now illegal to pray silently outside of an abortion clinic in England because someone in power said so. Some little tyrant with big tyrant ideas. Saddam Hussein was a big tyrant who had his own style of law enforcement. He liked to take someone who didn't do as they were told and slowly lower the hapless victim into a vat of acid, gradually dissolving him from the toes up. Saddam even brought his young sons along to teach them the art of keeping power in an environment where many other similarly-minded people want to take the power away. Better to be on the giving end of the orders to lower men into acid than be on the receiving end of the order, he instructed them. Now, there is no doubt that aspiring tyrants exist in every society, including America. And here, like everywhere else, they are attracted to the seats of power in the cities of power. Their attraction to power was understood by the founders of this country, who realized that they would not be able to legislate such people away from power. Instead, they created a system of checks and balances to keep any one person from accumulating too much power, and the heart of the checks and balance system was the ballot box. Ironically, that little box is the only thing keeping American government from devolving into tyranny. So what would happen if politicians got control of the ballot box? What if, instead of having to please their constituents to get voted into office, they found a way to control what came out of the ballot box so that they would guarantee their power regardless of how people actually voted? What would that do to their restraint? Well, you don't need me to tell you what it would do. Just observe the in-your-face contempt and open hostility that politicians and their media allies show toward anyone who dares question the processes we use to vote or criticizes how the votes are counted, or objects to the involvement of secretive outside parties in the voting and vote-counting process. Our modern politicians do not look at these people as defenders of the republic, the ones who are complaining, who warrant protection and consideration, but rather as threats that need to be silenced, intimidated, persecuted, and if necessary, eliminated. These politicians turn the powers of the state against the citizens, which makes the state a weapon and the citizens a target. And that tells you all you need to know about the condition of the American ballot box. There is a sixth-generation war going on in America, which is just one of the many physical manifestations of the spiritual war that has been raging between Satan and God since the Garden of Eden incident. The purpose of this war is to take ground, which is whatever the offensive side wishes to control. To take ground, weapons are deployed to target and destroy everything that resists the taking of ground. Some elements of warfare are, are overt, meaning out in the open. In the olden days, the British considered it good manners to stand stoically in lines and shoot at the other team until one side ran out of bodies. That's an example of overt warfare. The Americans thought it was wiser to hide behind trees, walls, and piles of dirt, or anything else that could provide cover, 
and then ambush and surprise the soldiers of Great Britain, killing them without exposing their own troops to hostile gunfire. The American patriots were completely devoid of good manners because they engaged in covert warfare. Covert meaning concealed or disguised. It was a more effective form of warfare in the Revolutionary War days, and it is a more effective form of warfare today. The idea behind covert warfare is that the offensive side gets to maximize the casualties of those who resist the taking of ground while minimizing their own casualties. And what's the best way to conduct a modern covert sixth-generation war? It is to take a weapon and disguise it as something beneficial that will gradually eliminate the opposition by injuring and killing people without raising any suspicions that they have been targeted by a weapon. If they can get people to volunteer to be victims by receiving whatever warhead the weapons can deliver, and preferably be eager to do so, that just makes it that much easier to snatch up the victory. And that is exactly where we are today. It's a very effective strategy because such weapons can be very hard to discern because they often look like natural everyday things. That is called camouflage and cover. What might a covert weapon look like? By now, every listener out there has heard about the train disaster in Ohio. It's hard to miss because there is even an occasional story about it in the lying, corrupt mainstream media. For those who may have sworn off news for the past month, a train carrying a large volume of toxic industrial chemicals derailed in Palestine, Ohio, releasing liquid vinyl chloride and possibly other things to the ground. The authorities that responded to the spill thought it would be a great idea to blow up the rail cars and burn the vinyl chloride and whatever else the train cars were carrying rather than have it leach into the ground. The resulting fire produced clouds of black toxic smoke that drifted as far north as Canada and the Great Lakes and eastward across the coastal states. There were reports of animals dying around the town of Palestine, trucks in Canada being coated with something black that removed paint, and hospitals that were overwhelmed with patients suffering from lung maladies and allergic reactions. Then, in the next couple of weeks, there were several other train derailments, a group of suspicious industrial fires that were reminiscent of recent fires at food processing facilities, a series of power infrastructure fires, and most recently, a string of massive garbage dump fires in India that are literally choking the people who have to live around them with toxic chemicals. This is all scary stuff for people who live around or downwind of these problems. Normally, in a catastrophic chemical release incident, environmental scientists run to and fro collecting hundreds of samples for laboratory analysis, with regulators standing in the background barking orders at everyone. Sample data is collected in large amounts because that's the only way to quantify the amount of damage that's been done to air, soil, and water. I know this because I'm a scientist who does this kind of thing for a living. In the case of the Ohio disaster, if there are people collecting samples, they sure aren't telling us much about it. Apart from a handful of samples that are being reported on the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency website, mostly from treated drinking water and surface water, there isn't much data available. And the sample data that is available is just kind of stupid. First of all, while it's prudent to sample treated drinking water, it would be outrageous if it came back contaminated. I mean, it's been treated! What do we expect it's going to show? And most surface water is notoriously void of meaningful levels of organic contaminants unless it has liquid product in the immediate vicinity. Contaminants get rapidly diluted by the vast volume of water in a surface water body, especially in rivers where the water is flowing. Those aren't the kind of samples that will tell us very much that's meaningful with regard to human health impacts from fires. 
They are the cover samples, the ones we would collect and run if we wanted to artificially minimize the severity of a disaster. The most direct threat to environmental receptors in this kind of incident is from exposure to airborne particulates. I haven't seen any of those data yet, and I'm not even sure it's being collected. Why isn't air data being published on the websites? Why aren't we seeing air sample collection stations all over the area? After all, everybody has to breathe the air. After air, the next media I'd be concerned with is dust and soil. We grow food on soil, walk on soil, and get exposed to dust from surface soil and other surfaces. There is no shortage of sites around the country where surfaces and soil were contaminated with a variety of materials, including dioxin, which is a byproduct from the burning of vinyl chloride, and it just happens to be one of the most toxic man-made chemicals on Earth. So it might be expected that surfaces and soils in the area around the train tanker fire would have elevated levels of dioxin. Dioxin can be absorbed through skin contact. It can get on skin from other surfaces and then get ingested. It can be absorbed by breathing, and with the renewable power of wind, the dioxin can spread a long, long distance downwind from the incident site. But there's been no reporting of surface wipe sample data or soil sample data. All they talk about is treated drinking water and surface water, the two least susceptible media from this kind of release. And finally, long before I get too worried about treated drinking water or surface water, I would test the groundwater. The liquid that leaked from the tankers flowed into the soil where it will continue to migrate downward until it reaches groundwater. Then it will dissolve into the groundwater as it continues its downward migration because it's denser than water. I haven't seen any groundwater sample data yet, and I haven't heard that any monitoring wells are being installed at the site. The only thing I have heard is that some private individuals are trying to collect some samples, but most of them don't seem to be environmental professionals, so I have to wonder if they even know what kind of samples to collect, where and how to collect the samples, and what tests to run on them. All in all, I would say that this has been a very strange response to a major catastrophic chemical release and burn. The residents were told there's nothing to be worried about and just return to their homes, dead pets and livestock notwithstanding. But it was imprudent at best to encourage them to return to their houses because vinyl chloride is reportedly one of the most toxic chemicals that are routinely used in industry. It does not take very much vinyl chloride to exceed a health-based cleanup standard. The federal standard for vinyl chloride is two parts per billion in groundwater. I have no idea what it is in Ohio, and their government website doesn't make it very easy to find out. In fact, most government websites seem brilliantly designed to hide most of the really important information in clever electronic areas where normal human beings don't ever go to look, and typical queries of their search algorithms consistently fail to identify anything even remotely close to what we really want to find out. Now, I don't work in Ohio, so I don't really care what their standards are, but I sure would like to be able to find them if I had a reason to. I don't know what the groundwater standard is, but the drinking water standard in Ohio is two parts per billion, so the groundwater standard is probably around that, which is very, very low. Vinyl chloride, regardless of where it's spilled, is persistent in the environment, meaning it's very hard to get rid of once it's there. It's highly toxic, and people should not be exposed to much of it for very long. If that is what was spilled, and if that is what was burned, Ohio and the surrounding states have quite a mess on their hand. But who is to say that vinyl chloride is the chemical that was burned? Something obviously burned, because we have video of fire and black clouds of soot rising into the air, but lots of things make black soot when burned. None of this makes any sense from a regular environmental disaster perspective. It does make sense, however, if the incident was staged in order to distract us from something else, 
or if the purpose was to contaminate a part of America. The one consistency in everything that's been happening for the past three years is the government's determination to reduce the herd of humanity to a manageable size. They want to do so slowly enough so that the die-off can be attributed to natural causes, which makes life safer for them, but fast enough to achieve their depopulation goals by whatever year they've set. In this world of lies and deceptions, the primary mechanism they are using to get us there is the death shot, the vax. That is a hard reality for many people to swallow, probably because so many people have received it, but also because it directly implicates the United States government. But there doesn't seem to be any way around it. The detrimental effect of the mRNA shot on human health is becoming so obvious that many of its early proponents are reluctantly admitting that their enthusiasm may have been misplaced. For example, late in 2022, the claimed inventor of the mRNA technology, Dr. Robert Malone, spoke out against the shot as the chosen spokesman of the Global COVID Summit, an organization representing tens of thousands of physicians and scientists from around the world who have been studying the effects of the vaccines. This is a brief excerpt from his video statement. Thank you for taking the time to listen to myself and my colleagues today speaking to you from the heart about what we've observed and what we're recommending as the Global COVID Summit team of over 17,000 physicians and scientists from all over the world. We declare and the data confirm that the COVID-19 experimental genetic therapy injections must end. We must acknowledge that the genetic COVID-19 genetic injections cause far more harm than good and provide zero benefit relative to risk for the young and healthy. They do not reduce COVID-19 infection, which is treatable and not terminal. Furthermore, the most recent data demonstrates that you are more likely to become infected or have disease or even death if you've been vaccinated compared to the unvaccinated people. This is shocking to hear, but it is what the data are showing us. The data now show that these experimental gene therapy treatments can damage your children as well as yourself. They can damage your heart, your brain, your reproductive tissue, and your lungs. This can include permanent damage and disablement of your immune system. We strongly recommend that these products now and in the future be regulated as the gene therapy products that they are and require public involvement of the FDA's gene therapy scientists and committees in reviewing and approving these drugs. We believe that it's necessary to reestablish the five-year minimum FDA testing period and to cease the emergency use authorization and require full FDA licensure of all novel medical products used for COVID-19. We also strongly recommend that there be investigations of the actual causes of death and damage to millions who have been subjected to these mandatory mRNA and adenoviral vector gene therapy injections. So the claimed inventor of the mRNA technology says the shot does not work. It does not stop COVID infection. It does not stop COVID transmission. That, by the way, means it's not a vaccine. It has a negative health efficacy since you are more likely to get COVID and die from COVID if you have had the shot than if you have not had the shot. 
This opinion of Dr. Malone in the Global Health Summit is consistent with many other independent researchers who have been studying the effects of the shot, some of whom have played on past episodes. It's consistent with the numerous studies that found metal contaminants in the shots, all of the shots regardless of brand, which makes it not a contaminant but a constituent that has been put in the potions deliberately. Keep in mind that metal is not supposed to be in pharmaceutical products. The Japanese government recognized the presence of metal in the shots early on and banned the products from being used in Japan. It's consistent with the findings of numerous morticians that their customers are presenting with a massive amount of never-before-seen rubbery blood vessel obstructions, which some people call clots, but they're not made of blood, so they are not blood clots. But the clot substances do have a very high proportion of metals that are not normally found in blood. It's consistent with governmental databases that record massive numbers of casualties from the shots, databases such as VAERS in the United States, and Eudra Vigilance in Europe, despite government officials constantly tampering with the databases and deleting incriminating data from them. But no matter how much evidence is produced, there will never be enough to overcome the deliberate disinformation campaign that is promulgated by the paid disinformants who write the fact-check articles that are constantly cited by the mainstream news and governmental organizations. It will never be enough to counter the shrill narrative from the mainstream news that repeats whatever psyop propaganda the CIA put out that morning. And no matter how many beautiful actors and actresses they put on television to read whatever is put before them, we are still able to obtain countervailing data and information from people who may be less beautiful on the outside, but are far more beautiful on the inside. One of these dissenting voices is Dr. Karen Phelps. You have probably never heard of Dr. Karen Phelps, so allow me to help you with that. She is a former member of the Australian Parliament, a former Australian Medical Association president, and a former hardline pusher of vaccines and draconian response efforts on behalf of the government of Australia. She and her wife, and that's a hard word for me to use in this context, both of them got injured from the vax. So let's hear a little bit from a News 9 Today broadcast from Australia about her story. Well, a former top doctor is calling for more research into COVID jabs after experiencing a vaccine injury. A former member for Wentworth, Dr. Karen Phelps, suffered irregular blood pressure and breathlessness following her second jab. I'm pleased to say she joins us live. Uh, Dr. Phelps, good morning. You and your wife both suffered vaccine injuries. Can you take us through what happened? Yes, good morning, Charles. Hello, Christine. Well, in Jackie's case, we obviously did a lot of homework about uh, the vaccines and uh, went along to have the vaccines done uh, because we believe that on the balance of risks and benefits that that was the, the best thing to do. And within minutes of having the vaccine, she had a quite severe reaction with uh, uh, numbness of her hands and feet, tingling all over her body, uh, her head feeling like it was going to explode, uh, pain, and uh, and then over the weeks and months following that, uh, the condition continued and uh, she'd seen a number of specialists and, and the conclusion was that she had had uh, an, an injury related to the vaccine. And so that was in her case. Uh, I went back and had the second vaccine, um, thinking that, you know, it's a, a rare reaction. And again, on the balance of risks and benefits, and, and in my case, I developed a reaction where my blood pressure, my pulse rate and my temperature was uh, was going up and down all over the place and uh, with some quite distressing symptoms and, and persisting for, for quite some time. 
and over a period of many months and uh, and I was diagnosed with a vaccine related dysautonomia so you know it, over the process of the last you know year and a half or so I've also spoken to a number of colleagues who've had vaccine uh, adverse events themselves uh, patients who've had vaccine adverse okay. events and uh, and so when I was putting in uh, the submission to the long COVID and reinfection inquiry for the Australian Parliament just in the last month or so, I included uh, the group of people who have suffered adverse events from vaccination as a group that needs to have special consideration when it comes to prevention of long COVID. These are serious side effects. Why did the medical regulator, APRA warn doctors then, as you claim, not to speak out about these vaccine side effects? We'd have to ask APRA themselves about their motivation, but certainly quite a number of doctors that I've spoken to have felt impeded in speaking out about uh, their concerns about vaccine adverse events because of the statement made by APRA that, uh, that doctors shouldn't say anything that was uh, going to impede the government's vaccine rollout. And they took that to mean uh, not to publicly raise their concerns. Now, why would the Australian government be so concerned about the truth impeding its vaccine rollout? In 2021, the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency issued a position statement that read in part, any promotion of anti-vaccination statements or health advice that contradicts the best available scientific evidence or seeks to actively undermine the national immunization campaign, including by social media, is not supported by the national boards and may be in breach of the codes of conduct and subject to investigation and possible regulatory action. They later clarified that statement to mean deregistration and possible criminal prosecution of anyone who violated their mandate, deregistration being the same as delicensure here in America. In other words, if a doctor did not do what they said or spoke any information that contradicted the official government position, then they would be subject to having their doctor's license revoked and possibly put into long-term quarantine in a camp with bars. I would love to ask this board exactly how they believe that science is advanced when scientists and doctors cannot question the, quote, best available scientific evidence, end quote. Which godlike intellect on the board or in the government makes the determination of what is best or even what is available? And how are we to judge among the available options to select the best if scientists and doctors who disagree with the government's position are not allowed to contribute to the available pool of options? Well, the answer is simple. There will be no judgment of best or selection from available when it comes to the sheeple who constitute the vast herd of government-owned bodies. Instead, they are to learn that the function of government-owned bodies is to do the government's bidding. Threats and intimidations for holding opinions that conflict with government edicts are not designed to protect good science or human health. They are designed to compel unquestioned obedience to government officials and government policies despite the science and without regard to the truth. The statement from that board is the kind of statement that emanates from a growing governmental tyranny. But don't think that what is happening in Australia can't happen here in America because we have some magic document protecting us called the Constitution because the same kind of threats are being winged around on this side of the pond too. And I'm not going to turn this podcast into a COVID conspiracy episode, but I do want to highlight one more news story to close out this topic. This information comes from technocracy.news. 
There is a new set of international billing codes that were promulgated by the World Health Organization, which have now been adopted by the medical industry here in America for Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. What are you talking about their codes for, Willis? Well, hang in there with me. It's going to be short. The International Classification of Disease, the ICD system, has become, quote, an electronic data mining beast with the passage by Congress of the Affordable Care Act in 2012, end quote. In January of 2023, a new disease diagnosis identity code, number Z28.310, was made available for a very strange disease. It is a disease code for your vaccine status. It tells governments around the world all about your vaccination status. Remember, your information and these codes are available worldwide through the WHO. The article says that doctors are likely to be incentivized to fill out this code. Quote, that means they, the doctors, get financial payouts whenever the government decides there's a meaningful use for this data. End quote. The code is nonspecific for vaccines, with the exception of COVID. That gets its own special number. They place a 1 after the code to indicate your COVID vaccination status, i.e. Z28.31. They can add a second digit, well, actually a third digit beyond the one, if you're partially vaccinated or didn't get any boosters. So it's pretty obvious how this information is going to be used and abused in the future, first for travel and later for ordinary living situations once we get digital IDs and social credit scores in place. I just wanted you to know that there may be a reason why your doctor asks you about your vaccination status when you visit their office, and it might have nothing to do with their pretending to be concerned about your health. Some medical corporations are putting a lot of pressure on their physicians to fill out this new code because they get financial reimbursement for it, and the government is not paying out financial reimbursements for nothing. So let me quickly summarize what 39 episodes have illustrated with regard to this world war we are participating in, and then we will start to explore some other things. First, the preparations for this war started many years ago, as has been exposed by people like Karen Kingston and Sasha Latipova, and documented on their Substack accounts. They have provided plenty of evidence that this was a carefully planned, multi-decade-long military operation. Donald Trump even told us its code name, Operation Warp Speed. Second, the war has been designed to do several things. It was designed to eliminate a substantial percentage of the world's population in order to make the remaining population more manageable. It was designed to transform what remains of humanity into a biological machine hybrid that will be more easily controlled by the ruling elitists. It was designed to degrade existing governments in order to transition over to a one-world government that exercises total control and authority over the remaining population. Third, COVID-19 was a manufactured virus, not a natural disease. It was produced in a DOD-funded bioweapons laboratory in China. The COVID-19 virus was designed to operate in conjunction with a coordinated, worldwide government-controlled lockdown and media-promoted fear campaign, the objective of which was to create as much fear and hysteria as possible to get people to do something that they would not otherwise do, which is... Fourth, take the bioweapon that masquerades as a vaccine. To make that decision easier, the powers who unleashed this beast on the world implemented a worldwide emergency system that deliberately disrupted the lifestyles of those who would not take the shot and confined them to an increasingly smaller space 
but allowed those who did take the shot to resume their lifestyles and enjoy the freedom of movement and association that all of us are used to and take for granted. The shot was a novel, never-before-used technology, but not a vaccine, and it was deployed to achieve two purposes. It was designed to degrade the immune system and attack organs in the body to speed up the development of diseases that occur naturally, and it created biomechanical machines within the body to monitor and relay biometric data to outside 5G receivers. In some cases, these internal machines grow large enough to block blood vessels and arteries and cause strokes and sudden death. Fifth, everything that the government industrial complex has done over the last three years has had as its primary purpose to get these injections into as many arms as possible as many times as possible. Therefore, the shot is the primary tool through which the globalists intend to achieve their goals. And finally, at sixth, the globalists are doing everything possible to create a general environment that is not amenable to maintaining human life at a large scale. This includes destroying the widespread, abundant, and safe energy resources of fossil fuel, destroying the food supply and the means to distribute food, destroying national and personal security by eliminating borders and corrupting normal legal processes and protections, by fomenting general financial and economic collapse, and in promulgating widespread warfare from local riots to racial ethnic conflicts to international warfare and maybe even nuclear war. Now that is one miserable game plan for humanity, so why would anyone go along with it? We've talked about why Satan likes his plan, but now it's time to see why people think it's a good idea. And it's not that they're all satanic lunatics. The highest level leaders of this cult certainly are satanic lunatics, but most of the governmental leaders who implement this plan actually have other reasons to go along for it, primarily personal welfare. In this small, insular world of high-level government leadership, personal survival can be a challenge in a world dominated by the CIA and DOD if you are a contrarian. Take, for example, the three leaders in Africa who refused to deploy the bioweapon shot and attack their populations with it. They all died suddenly from natural causes shortly after standing up to the globalist oligarchs. Of the couple dozen African leaders in power when the bioweapon was deployed, it just happened to be these three contrarians who died. And then there is that poor guy down in Haiti, Jovenal Moisa, who also stood up to the oligarchs, the CIA, and the DOD, and refused to go along with their injection plan. Unlike the Africans, he didn't die of natural causes. He was brutally murdered. So I guess the CIA can't make all these deaths look natural on short notice. Besides, there's some benefit to making an obvious hit under some circumstances. There is a man who has nicely summarized the objectives and tactics of this war on humanity, publicly and without any hint of shame. He is the spokesman of the globalist tyrants who are prosecuting this war, and his name is Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum. In one of his brilliant declarations, he authorized the production and release of a video titled Eight Predictions for the World in 2030. The very first prediction was that you will own nothing and be happy. That doesn't mean that no one will own anything, because all property has to be owned by someone. It means that the elitists who desire to run the world will own everything, and you will rent what you need from them, permanently transferring whatever money you earn from your slave labor back to the oligarchs. Sweet! But the real goal of the globalists does not stop with the transfer of all the world's wealth over to them. That is still too small a thing for their perceived importance. An even more important goal of the globalists is to change the very nature of who you are. And Klaus bragged about it on a video. 
Let's listen. The difference of this fourth uh, industrial revolution is it doesn't change what you are doing. It changes you. If you take a genetic editing, right. uh, just as an example, it's you who exactly. are changed. Yeah. And of yeah. course, this has a big impact yeah. on your identity. You see, God makes Satan's servants tell us everything they intend to do so that we cannot say we were not warned. We are in a world war, which the globalists have named the Fourth Industrial Revolution. It's kind of a cute play on the revolutionary rhetoric of modern tyrants and industrial society. Both communists and fascists love revolutions. According to Klaus, the purpose of this Fourth Industrial Revolution is to change you, to change who you are. Why? Because you will need to be changed in order to learn how to own nothing and be happy serving your slave masters forever and ever for whatever they feel like giving you. That darned independent free market American attitude is just going to have to go. In another interview, Klaus got a little more specific about the nature of the revolution. Let's listen carefully to what he told us and break it down one little soundbite at a time. The fourth industrial revolution will impact our lives completely. In an era when words are frequently used with great exaggeration, saying something like our lives will be changed completely could mean something as trivial as we will get a new cat. But in this case, Klaus actually means what he says. He means our lives are going to be changed completely. That's the goal, the objective of the New World Order, and he states it right at the opening salvo of his presentation. It will not only change how we communicate, how we produce, how we consume. So the details of the complete change start out with the less important and progress to the more important. He starts out listing three lesser items, communicate, produce, and consume. The communication will change because it's going to go from external communications to internal communications. It will transition from our communicating with others for our benefit to our bodies communicating with their control system for their benefit without our knowledge, consent, or cooperation. Data will be streaming from you to them, not the other way around, and it will be streaming continually and constantly. How you produce will be changed because they will be able to totally control your life since you will own nothing and that will give them the ability to tell you how you are going to produce, when you are going to produce, where you are going to produce, and what you are going to produce. 15-minute smart cities are coming, which is nothing more than miniature virtual prisons. That's where they will put us to live and to produce for their benefit. Whether or not we are ever allowed to leave our little footprint of a smart city will depend in large part on how well we please them in our assigned work. How we consume will be changed when we get that coveted virtual ID that will be tied to our virtual identity and our virtual bank account and our virtual social credit scores. If we are very good workers who do not violate any of their arbitrary and capricious rules, we might get a reward like an ice cream cone that we can buy between 3 and 6 o'clock on a Tuesday. And if you don't buy it then, or if you can't buy it then, the ice cream cone credit will just be removed from your digital wallet. Doesn't that kind of world sound like fun? It will change actually us, our own identity. Now, how can a revolution change our identities? Well, what is an identity? Merriam-Webster defines it as the distinguishing character or personality of an individual. So Klaus says the Third World War will change our character or personality. That's interesting. 
I wonder how it's going to do that. And of course, gives life uh, to such uh, policies and uh, developments like uh, smart traffic, smart government, smart cities. Well, that sounds smart, doesn't it? Everybody likes to be smart. The word smart in this context does not mean smart. It means monitored, influenced, and controlled. Traffic is the least of these three. The intention is to remove the individual from the role of driver in order to impose mobility control. Transportation systems, including cars, will be monitored and controlled by artificial intelligence systems. Remember, you're not going to own anything. If you need to go to the grocery store, you will rent an autonomously driven car. It will not be a car of your choice, but one that is chosen by others. If you don't have a high enough social credit score, you will not be able to rent a car. You will have to walk to the assigned grocery store within your 15-minute smart city. On your way there, you will walk through a surveillance wonderland. Everywhere you go and everything you do will be constantly monitored, assessed, and plugged into your social credit score. Unlike in the dystopian novel 1984, there will not be anywhere you can hide from the 24-7 surveillance, not even the privacy of your own bathroom. The system will know where you are, who you are with, what you are doing, what you are saying, what you might even be thinking, every second of every day, everywhere you go, which may not be very far depending on who you are, who you choose to associate with, what you choose to do, what you choose to say, or what you choose to think. Smart cities will have smart locks in lots of smart places to keep you confined, controlled, and compliant. And it will all be run by smart governments. Isn't that funny? Why would a government need to be monitored, influenced, and controlled? Well, Klaus is not talking about the government, as in the oligarchs who will own and control everything. They are beyond government. They are the super-government. He is talking about the lower governments, the ones whose job it will be to implement the instructions and dictates of the overlords. They will be monitored, influenced, and controlled to do whatever the overlords want because nothing is to be left to chance. What we will see is that uh, everything will be integrated into an ecosystem driven by big data and uh, driven uh, particularly by close cooperation also of governments uh, with um, uh, business, civil society. Close integration with business and civil society is called fascism. It is the formal wedding of monopolistic business interests with special civil and governmental interests in order to use police and legal weapons to control their enemies, which are the citizens of the state. These globalists are the modern version of European fascists who are rising again to power. Their system will be the greatest public-private partnership in human history, something that could only be dreamed of by the diabolical President Barack Obama, who coined the term here in America. And this revolution will come at a breathtaking speed. It will be like a tsunami. And actually, it's not just a digital revolution. It's digital, of course, physical, it's nanotechnology, but it's also biological. Like a tsunami, it will overwhelm society, kind of like the Wehrmacht overwhelmed Poland. And the tool for overwhelming society will be nanotechnology and biology. That would be the bioweapon masquerading as a vaccine. The shot contains nanotechnology in the form of nanoparticles that encapsulate an mRNA strand, the biology part of this weapon that together create an environment where a biosynthetic structure 
which is part biology and part machine, can be constructed inside the human body. It is a merging of man and machine at a scale so small we will not even know it's happening, at least until our personality and our thoughts and our identities start to change. And those three dimensions provide a particular force to this revolution. Those three dimensions provide particular force to this revolution. Uh, what three dimensions, Klaus? The digital, the physical, and the biological. A tsunami is an irresistible force that slowly overwhelms and changes whatever it touches. This tsunami, Klaus speaks of, is the digital data that will originate inside our bodies and be transmitted through the 5G network to supercomputers run by artificial intelligence. The physical nanostructures embedded inside our bodies and the resulting modification of biology itself through gene editing and biosynthesis will produce not only the means to implement a massive surveillance and control system inside our bodies, but will provide the means to control our activities by changing who we are and how we think. Doesn't that sound great? My friends, this is not some dream of a demented psycho ward patient. This is the plan that is being implemented around the world to create an unprecedented worldwide prison planet ruled by a tiny few who control the great many through an artificial hive mind, all controlled by artificial intelligence. Oh, come on, that's pie-in-the-sky sci-fi stuff. It's never gonna happen. If that's what you think, it is a very dangerous position to take. Mr. Klaus, I have more money than God Schwab is not a cartoon character. He wields more real power in his little finger than most humans ever dream about in their entire lifetimes. He's not the big boss, but that doesn't mean he doesn't wield real power. Do you want to see what kind of power he wields? Consider the organization that he runs. It's the World Economic Forum. Klaus has bragged about placing graduates from an education program they run called Young Global Leaders, placing them into governments all around the world. Some of the graduates that we know about include Angela Merkel, the former Chancellor of Germany who led Europe into the predicament it's in now, and Tony Blair, the former Prime Minister of Great Britain who supported all the changes that Merkel brought to Europe, including their disastrous immigration programs. Both of these leaders were from the first class of global leaders in 1992. Currently in power is Emmanuel Macron, the not-so-beloved president of France, who bows before the globalist elites but shows utter contempt to the citizens of France. And Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister of New Zealand, who has recently decided to resign because she is so incredibly unpopular, having single-handedly forced most New Zealanders to get multiple shots. There is our own beloved Gavin Newsom, the governor who has promoted one disastrous globalist policy after another in California, driving Californians out of the state by the hundreds of thousands. And Peter Buttigieg, our current transportation secretary, who has no idea how to handle any transportation incident or even show up for work half the time. He is from a recent class in 2019. Outside of government is the leader of big industry, Jeff Bezos, who is a really, really rich guy. And Bill, the godfather of vaccines, Gates, who not only is another really rich guy, but is under investigation and possible criminal prosecution in various African countries for using their women and babies as vaccination lab rats. And not to be left out is Ms. Chelsea Clinton, the darling of the globalists who is on a corporate board after corporate board 
because of all the brilliant contributions that she brings to all things business and corporate. That's what a BA in history, an MA in international relations, and a PhD in international relations gets you when you are the daughter of the Clinton head of the crime syndicate. I mean, what cutthroat corporate board of capitalist greed doesn't want the author of the dissertation, The Global Fund, an experiment in global governance on their business decision-making board? That's just a few of the thousands of graduates from this WEF education program, and there are thousands more from yet another similar program. They have been placed into key positions in corporations and governments around the world in order to work from the inside to establish laws, rules, and policies that help advance the globalist agenda. We don't know the names of all of these WEF loyalists because very few of them advertise their past participation in the WEF class, but their influence is broad and deep, stretching down to state and local governments to teach and encourage them to create an environment of enthusiasm for globalist policies and projects. One example of this is the formerly great state of New York. During the height of the COVID pandemic, the New York government and its media allies did all they could do to incite terror in the population and lock them down, including forcing lots of old people to congregate together in care facilities where they quickly caught and spread the flu, which led to numerous deaths. These decrees emanated from rulers who thought they could wield infinite power over the ruled masses despite laws and constitutions that forbade them from doing so. In the dark of night, when no one was looking, then-governor of New York Andrew Cuomo issued a decree that essentially allowed government officials to incarcerate people without trial for an indefinite period at a location of its choosing without even the necessity of charging them with a violation. An attorney named Bobby Ann Cox noticed this decree and decided to take action on behalf of some constituents. She was recently interviewed by Maria Z of Z Media about this and some other issues. Let's hear a little bit about what happened and, more importantly, the response of Como's then-Lieutenant Governor and now-elected Governor Kathy Hochul because it clearly shows the kind of power these people are trying to obtain. We're joined now by attorney Bobby Ann Cox from Cox Lawyers. This woman is an absolute hero. She defeated Kathy Hochul last year in the government quarantine laws and, uh, you know, the, the fact that they were trying to take people uh, to quarantine camps, potentially indefinitely. Uh, and so Bobby Ann fought that one successfully. Now Kathy Hochul's trying desperately to get the quarantine laws back in. It's absolutely insane. Why would these people be appealing this? Bobby Ann's here to talk about all of that and more today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's, it's really an honor. I wish that more people around the world were, more attorneys around the world would be, uh, you know, proactive on this topic because it just simply doesn't make sense, particularly in the case of Kathy Hochul. We've got, uh, you know, Biden saying COVID's done. Why would we be fighting so hard for these quarantine camps? But talk, talk to us first about how you actually successfully initially obliterated this and now why Governor Hochul wants them back. Yeah, so um, it was actually back in 2021 when I became aware of this regulation. Um, I, you know, when COVID hit here in New York back in March of 2020, um, our government here in New York State really just became a, a very clear totalitarian state. I mean, the governor, the legislature 
gave the governor special powers that had never been done before. The governor started issuing these you know, lockdowns. All citizens had to lock down. Um, he wouldn't allow people to do really anything unless you were deemed you know, um, what he called, uh, you know, an emergency worker um, or a, a, you know, a vital worker. Um, otherwise, you had to stay home and people were not, I mean, first of all, they were scared. Um, but second of all, they were not sure whether or not any of this was legal and if they had to follow these orders. So almost immediately in March of 2020, I started to speak out um, and try to help people understand what was legal, what wasn't legal, what does the Constitution say, what are your rights, because people really had no idea. Um, but then in 2021 is when I heard about this regulation. And at that point in time, um, we had then switched governors. So originally under the, the first part of the pandemic, it was Governor Andrew Cuomo. Um, and then he stepped down in, in the middle of 2021. And then it was Kathy Hochul who became the governor. And um, this regulation that she had put through her Department of Health was very draconian. It basically gave the Department of Health the power to pick and choose which New Yorkers they were going to lock up or lock down. So they could have locked you up in your home and forced you to stay in your home, or they could have removed you from your home and put you into a quarantine facility that they chose. So you had no choice where you went. There was no time restriction, so the, they could have held you for days or weeks or months. Um, there was no age restriction, so they could have taken you or your child or your grandchild, uh, your elderly parent, absolutely no age restriction. Um, there was a provision in there that said that they could tell you what you could and couldn't do while you were in quarantine. So, you know, that that's anything, right? That's, I mean, they could have told you, what you could eat or where you could eat or, you know, if you could eat or what medications you had to take or couldn't take or, you know, it, it, it's just unbelievable the power that they gave themselves. Um, they put in there a provision that said they could use local law enforcement to enforce their orders. So you literally could have gotten a knock on the door and it could have been the local sheriff or the local police saying, you know, sorry, you need to come with me. I have, a you know, a quarantine order from the health department. You know, and the, and the scariest part is they didn't have to actually prove you were infected with a disease. They didn't even have to prove you were exposed to a, to a disease. They didn't have to prove anything. They just they could have just issued an isolation or quarantine order, and that's it. You had no way to fight back. You couldn't say to them, for example, oh, you know what? I don't have tuberculosis. I'll take a test. I'll prove to you. You know, I don't have this disease. No, there was no provision like that in this regulation. And you know when we were when we were actually doing oral arguments in front of the judge about this, he asked the attorney general's office. He said, "If you've taken a family and you've put them into quarantine, let's say you put them into a facility or a hospital, let's say, how do they get out once they're in there?" And uh, you know they thought about it for a minute, and then finally the attorney general said, "Well, I guess they could hire a lawyer and they could sue." You know, my so, goodness. Yes, really unbelievable violation of our rights. I mean, there was no due process protection built into this reg. It actually conflicted with an existing law we have in New York, which we've had for 70 years, which says what you do if there is someone who has a communicable disease and they are not acting in a proper manner to safeguard the people around them. 
We do have a quarantine law, but it has many due process protections built into it so that the government can't abuse its power. Uh, you know, the number one thing that law says is they have to first prove you have a communicable disease. You know, and then there has to be an investigation and you have a right to an attorney and there has to be a hearing in front of a judge. And, you know, there are all these steps which make sense. And, and there, there are these protections put in that law. That is not what the governor wanted to do, no. She wanted to make a regulation completely conflicting with that law, and they just wanted to do whatever they wanted to do on their own whim. So uh, once I heard about this regulation, I decided to bring a lawsuit to stop them. And um, thankfully, I was able to team up with a group of New York state legislators, um, Senator George Borrello, Assemblyman Chris Taig, and Assemblyman Mike Lawler, together with a citizens group called Uniting New York State, and um, we sued the governor. We argued separation of powers had been breached. The governor in the Department of Health, they're in the executive branch. They didn't have the power to make this regulation. And basically that they took the power from the New York state legislators. And this was our argument, breach of separation of powers. And, and we won the judge absolutely positively. He was very clear in his decision they had breached separation of powers, which is a violation of the Constitution, and he struck down the regulation and said it's null, it's void, and he prohibited them from enforcing it. In the case of New York and similar liberal states, the political leadership is not on the side of freedom and liberty. They have made their stands, and their stand is firmly with a globalist like Klaus Schwab and their dystopian plan to create a prison planet, one tyrannical move at a time. They are not friends of liberty, and they are not the friends of God and Christ. In the Bible, God tells us that these forces of tyranny will eventually turn on Christians, hunt us down, and kill us. We are going to end not of their plan to engineer this persecution of Christians, but of how far the plan is already gone. Here's another segment from Maria Z, who this time is interviewing a former Australian police sergeant named Carrie Joy. There was a recent shooting of police officers in Australia that involved, ostensibly, Christians doing the shooting. This resulted in media hand-wringing about the danger of leaving Christians free to roam at large in society. ABC News in Australia sought to understand this mysterious teaching, known as premillennialism, that the police allege led to the attack on their officer, and they did this by interviewing Dr. Josh Roos of Deakin University. This man of letters and elevated intellect sought to put this mysterious teaching into an appropriate perspective. What is premillennialism? Premillennialism is a, a form of Christian evangelical textualism. So they, they basically understand the world as plagued by corruption and evil. And, and they believe that into this context, a series of events that will herald the last days, the last days of mankind effectively will emerge. So that includes a rapture, which is a horrendously violent event linked to judgment for sin, uh, tribulation, the battle of Armageddon and the end of days. And this is drawn primarily from the uh, book of Revelation. It's, it's really important that this is actually lo labelled as an act of terrorism. Uh, for, for, we're, we're very familiar, I suppose, with uh, terrorism and, and religion being particularly targeted at Muslim communities. And, and in this case, we're, we're seeing it for the very first time in, in a different context. So we're talking about an extreme fringe, but there are certainly others out there who would subscribe to these views. So we need to understand that, for example, new forms of violent extremism and terrorism emerging in relation to incre rapidly increasing economic inequality, catastrophic natural disasters that really have the potential to tie into worldviews. 
So uh, biblical proportion floods and fire, for example, uh, the COVID vaccination mandates and, and lockdowns are seen as some sort of government um, attempt to coerce and control the population, which ties into conspiracy theories. And now we have social media in which these ideas can be spread without regulation uh, through encrypted messaging apps. Just one final question. If anyone watching has a suspicion that someone they know, someone they love has these kinds of extreme and violent views, what should they do? And the, the default option is obviously the uh, National Security Hotline, uh, which has been quite successful uh, for the government for, for many years. So now w what happens? I'm caught out with a Bible, has the book of Revelation in it, uh, and the police ask me why I'm carrying this extremist book around with me. Is, is that what yeah, we're it, facing? It, it's, it, it appears to be, and it's absolutely ludicrous. Dr. Roos and ABC News just illustrate a real-world example of the kind of twisted propaganda that the globalist overlords will unleash as they seek to find, incarcerate, and re-educate anyone who shows the slightest inclination toward Christian beliefs. Nothing man does or can do will stop Satan from bringing the Antichrist to power, and by the time he comes to power, any semblance of freedom and liberty will have been completely crushed beneath the boot of globalist tyranny and chaos that they are going to unleash across the globe. All of this must come to pass because God has to make it clear to everyone, including Christians, that we cannot save ourselves from Satan. Nothing we do will have any lasting effect at stopping his advance. Is that depressing? If we put our faith in man, in government, or even in the church to solve our problem of sin here on earth, if we look for a human being or institution to save us from the rising evil around us, we are going to be frustrated, disappointed, and despairing of events that are soon to unfold. But if we look to God to save us from our enemies, even when it looks hopeless and the enemies are at our door, God will be faithful to bring us through the crisis, through the persecution, and through the suffering. He may not necessarily bring us through in our present human bodies, but he will bring us through in the much more important eternal state of our spirit and soul. If we have to leave this earth before the rapture, Christians are to rest in the knowledge that we will be coming back with Jesus in our permanent, incorruptible, immortal bodies, following the King who will bring the ultimate victory we are looking for to the world. That victory is not going to be brought by the Donald, by hordes of patriot fighters, or any other human savior. Let's end today by quoting the six-part guiding instructions for this age that was given to Christians by Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. If you want to know what we are to do in this age of increasing chaos and violence that is leading up to the return of Jesus Christ, this is where you should look if you are a Christian. And it says nothing about human government. Number one, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Number two, do not fear that which you are about to suffer, but be faithful unto death. Number three, repent of sexual immorality and demonic enticements. I'm paraphrasing here a little bit. Number four, hold fast to your service, faith, and patience. Number five, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. And remember how you have received and heard. And number six, hold fast and overcome. So the bottom line is, don't follow the morality and virtues of the society that follows Satan, but endure the onslaught and strengthen the knowledge that we have been given in the Bible. And if you find that the faithful church leaves this earth before you do, Jesus has one final word of wisdom for you. Be zealous and repent. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I have also overcome to sit down with my father on his throne. Nowhere in this set of instructions does it tell us to put our trust and hope in any candidate, politician, party, institution, law, court, military, government, voting process, ballot box, Donald Trump, or the New World Order. It tells us to place our trust and hope in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Anything less will get us on the roller coaster of euphoria and depression that leads to destruction. We are to endure, and that implies that we are going to experience serious problems, disrupted lives, the shadow of death, violence, official corruption, persecution, and blasphemy. Just the kinds of things we talked about today. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and give it a sign, a beautiful sign to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, and Podchaser. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Lord, the demons of darkness are rising, trying to transhumanify us all. Don't let us become like the song of the 1980s. Instead, please watch over us and guide our footsteps in the paths that you want us to take, helping us to focus always on the wise words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.8, where it says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Amen. <laughs>